Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live every Tuesday from the Heritage Radio Network at Roberta's Pizzeria in the back, in the little container they have cut here for our radio station in the Bushwick. Joined, as usual, with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, although a sick Nastasha. Yes. Right? Yes. Listen, while I, while I talk about Nastasha, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you to call all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. You gotta hurry because we're only here to answer your Thanksgiving-related cooking questions or otherwise for the next forty-five minutes or so. So, Anastasia, uh, not feeling well, huh? No. You know it was even more depressing. What? Getting on the subway and seeing everyone with their suitcases at Port Authority going home. Well, the, well, they were at Port Authority, so you can laugh at them for that reason. Port Authority <laughs> so is was I. for those of you that haven't uh, visited our fine city. Port Authority is a hellhole. I mean, a one hundred percent unmitigated hunk of crap. One job. One job, one job. Get people into the city and out of the city in an effective manner. So what, what are some things you need? Good transport back and forth, right? Mm-hmm. Good signage? Mm-hmm. And friendly Good staff? people, yeah. Yeah. Any of those? No. No. Worse staff, worse, unless you work there, in which case I love you, worse <laughs> signage. Uh, hard, you know, the building itself is split into two sections uh, with a road running through it. So you're like, where's my bus? Oh, it's in the other building. How come there's no sign saying it's in the other freaking building? Because this is Port Authority. What do you want? An easy way to get in and out of the city? The hell's wrong with you? Anyway, Port Authority sucks. The only thing that uh, kind of rivals Port Authority for sucking has got to be Penn Station. Yeah. The other biggest hunk of crap in the entire city. And also the other place that's supposed to get people in and out of the city relatively easy. Again, for those of you that don't take trains in and out of the city, either because you're rich enough to always have a car or whatever. I don't know why. But... uh, um, for some reason, even at Grand Central, at Grand Central, I can tell you right now on a program exactly what track your train will be on in a month and a half. Okay, uh, at Penn Station, they like to wait until five minutes before the train's going to leave, so that everyone with their luggage is smashing into each other down a tiny corridor to rush and beat each other up and like knock each other into the tracks to get to the train. Does this make any freaking sense? Come on, people. Anyway. All right, enough of that. Okay. Uh, did I already tell them to call in their questions? Yeah. Anyway, so I think the reason Nastasha is sick is because Nastasha was, in part, aside from all the other cooking issues and you know new company-related work that we're doing, she ran the uh, wedding celebration oh, for God. our good buddy, Nils Norn and, and Vicky. Uh, you know, Chef Nils Norn, our buddy, had his uh, wedding. He never, thought he, he never thought he would get no. married until he found Vicky, the right woman. And Nastasha forgets to tell me. It's a true story. <sighs> Forgets to tell me, hey, Nils requested that you make some cocktails for the wedding, which I would gladly do. I would do anything for Nils. Uh, doesn't, doesn't tell me, makes them, and was like, they've made them. I'm like, the hell I've made them. They were good. They were delicious, right? But like, I'm not going to take- recipes. Uh, so, so it's my recipe. If I make, if I make Bobby Flay's recipe, it's like, hey, hey, Bobby Flay made your chicken. Anyway, they were good. So, you know, to you goes the credit. But had they sucked, you would have gone the blame as well, because that's the way she goes. All right. Matthew writes in, 
Hi, Dave and Nastasha. I'm looking forward to today's show. Uh, this Friday, I'm catering a party, and the host has requested uh, me to prepare a fillet of beef. That's tenderloin for other, uh, all you other people out there. I don't have access to a circulator, although there's a slight chance I could borrow one from some friends, and we'll have to cook the tenderloins from raw at the apartment where the party is. I'll probably cook one uh, from medium rare to medium, which is already too high for my taste, by the way, uh, Matthew. Uh, and another medium to well done, and in parentheses, he writes, not my choice, obviously. Not anyone's choice. What the hell? Just put a blindfold on the customer so they don't know how overcooked it is and they'll enjoy it when it's cooked less. Anyway, if you don't have the opportunity to poke their eyes out so they can't look at the color, I mean, it's what, you know, you're going to have to so- – obviously, if you do tenderloin well done, you're going to have to sauce it, sauce the bejesus out of it in order to have it be like, even moderately edible. Right or wrong? Right. Anyway, uh, do, you have any, do you have any suggestions, guidelines, temperatures, or general advice for preparing, preparing beef filet with standard-issue home kitchen equipment? I have about a three-hour window from when I arrive at the house until the meat will be served. Okay, look it. Uh, if you really do have to cook one of these suckers until it's uh, gray and, and unappetizing, you're going to have to make a uh, delicious sauce to go with it. Uh, I suggest something a sauce with a lot of fat in it that's bound that's not going to have the fat pull out. A cream-based sauce perhaps. Perhaps onions, cassis, and cream, some mixture thereof might be good. With some reduced beef stock, right, Stas? Mm-hmm. That sounds good, mm-hmm. right? Anywho, uh, so that's one thing. <clears throat> Another thing, if, you, if, if you're going to – look, if you're supposed to overcook it because your customers want it overcooked, you might as well go ballsy and do a beef wellington because that's kind of ballsy, right? Where you take – you're going to sear off the meat. Then you're going to uh, take a mixture of pate and uh, sautéed mushrooms and shallots and put it over the top of the tenderloin, wrap the sucker in puff pastry, and then cook it in a high oven. Guaranteed to overcook the tenderloin, but if they want it overcooked anyway, uh, that's what I would recommend. Now, tenderloin uh, is interesting. It's a, you know, it's a cut that a lot of chefs don't give um, a lot of merit to because uh, it doesn't have a lot of connective tissue, and people think of it as a fairly, as far as beef goes, not having a lot of beef flavor. So chefs tend to make fun of the cut. Now, it can be delicious as a textural thing, and it does, I mean, come on, it does have some beef flavor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and, and sexist, it's usually, it, like, a lot of it, basically, there's a lot of sexism among, <laughs> newsflash, a lot of sexism <laughs> in this business. And, uh, you know, it's seen as kind of a lady's cut. It's kind of like, it's the Cosmo of steaks, basically. Uh, so, uh, but the trick to cooking one is one, not overcooking it. It, because there's no connective tissue, it wants to cook at a very, very low temperature. So when I am using a circulator, I only cook it up to like 54.4 Celsius, which is very low, rare, uh, because it doesn't have any sort of fat really, or connective tissue to protect it from overcooking. Two, you don't want to cook it that long because you know, even with a low temperature, even if you had a circulator, um, the meat would get um, a kind of mushy if you cooked it for uh, a long time. So if you, and I'm presuming, by the way, you are writing the, the question that you want to keep it whole as a whole fillet and then cut serving. Otherwise, I would just cut it into steaks and cook the steaks, which is a lot easier to do uh, well using home equipment. Now, I'm going to go radical on you. First of all, if you have to do it at home equipment, I would put a, a crust on it, and then I would put it in the oven, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out of the oven to try and uh, get a more moderate heat on it so it doesn't uh, overcook. Uh, but that's a pain in the butt, and if you don't do it all the time, that's how David Kinch like, now replicates. because David Kinch from Manresa, amazing chef, uh, he uh, moved away from using circulators and instead mimics 
the effect of a circulator, which is a low average heat input, by moving the meat in and out, in and out, in and out uh, of an oven, which at the same time has the high heat of the oven, which crisps, crisps and browns the outside while he's getting the low average heat input. So he's doing it that way. You can do it that way. Here's something I suggest. Go to the apartment. Most people's hot water taps at an apartment are fairly hot. Measure the temperature of the hot water using uh, an instant read thermometer. If the water is within a couple of degrees of 54, like if it's 53, all the way up to like 55, 56, then I would put the tenderloin in a Ziploc bag with a little bit of oil and turn the running water on. If the water is too hot, add a tiny bit of cold water and it'll stabilize. Get a steady but not severe stream of uh, hot water. This won't work in an apartment, by the way, uh, in, in a house because you'll typically run out of hot water, but in an apartment, usually you won't. So you can run a steady stream of hot water over a Ziploc bag, and I've actually cooked food this way in a pinch. It's completely eco-unfriendly, uh, but uh, it, it will work. Bring it. You want to make sure that the thing cooks through in under – you want to cook it in about 45 to 50 minutes, and a tenderloin will cu- cook through. Uh, it depends on how thick it is. It might take an hour and a half if it's really thick, uh, and then pull it out, cool it down a little bit, and sear the outside of it. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah, anyway. So about 54 is where I shoot for for rare. I do not go above 56. Tenderloin has a very, very short window of uh, yumminess. Okay. Uh, now, uh, our good friend uh, Ariel from UC Davis. Is she a postdoc now at UC Davis or is she still a grad student? What is she? Is she postdoc? I don't know. Anyway, our good buddy who used to be at NYU is friends with uh, Kent Kirschenbaum and um, – she gave us some very interesting information. She's uh, running some tests on lime juice for us, uh, for herself, really. But, you know, it also helps us because, uh, you know, people who've heard me yap about lime juice a lot know that uh, a lot of people prefer lime juice that's three or four hours old as opposed to very fresh lime juice in a cocktail. And so she's doing the preliminary studies on what's actually going on in the lime juice. And apparently the volatile, the level of volatiles decreases rapidly over that first three to four hour chunk and other flavors are starting to come in. So it looks like there might be an actual sweet spot in the lime juice if you like a specific profile. More to come. She's going to work on it more in the new year, but that's pretty interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is that she wrote in about uh, pungency and garlic, which is something that uh, you know I apparently now got wrong and apparently McGee also, we both got it wrong. There is a pungency scale for alliums onions in, in particular, but I'm sure it would also work with garlic, and it's called the pyruvate scale. So what happens is is when, it, when you convert uh, allian or whatever it is to allicin, whichever way it goes, from the non-pungent to the pungent using the enzymes when you cut or crush garlic or onion, uh, that pungency that's created also creates uh, a, mo- a molecule of pyruvate, which is easily measurable and doesn't degrade. So what happens is they uh, – as fast. So they make the uh, – they crush up onions and they use a relatively inexpensive piece of equipment, a uh, spectrophotometer as opposed to like doing uh, um, uh, you know, uh, chromatography, a more expensive process. And they can measure directly the level of uh, pyruvate that's there and therefore uh, – have a measure of how pungent the uh, product is. So there is a measure of pungency. Uh, that in from Ariel. And you can look it up. You, it was even on Wikipedia. I should have looked at it. It's called Pyruvate Scale. Dumb. dumb. I'm dumb. Uh, anyway, she sent us a paper. Um, and you can, you can just go look it up for those of you that have that sort of, uh, that sort of a capability to look up papers. Pyruvate Scale. Anyway. Interesting, yeah? Mm-hmm. Hmm, yeah. Um, all right. Now, 
Jason from the southwest of England writes in and says, I'm a dedicated podcast listener, but usually cannot listen live and call in because I'm in England, although I'm a native New Yorker. So hopefully I can ask Dave a question via email. Well, here you are doing it. Here it is happening. Okay. Uh, I had an argument recently with some people, most notably my wife, about storing coffee. She told me it should not be stored cold. I keep my current bag of coffee in the fridge and any supplies in the freezer. No one could explain to me why this was bad, and I assumed that reducing the rate of oxidation and general spoilage by keeping the coffee cold has to be a major benefit given how fast uh, coffee gets old and stale. My rationale also include the fact that the ground uh, coffee is going to come up to temperature super fast given its low moisture content, high surface area, and the fact that it's being immersed in 100-degree water. What do you think? The science, uh, the science uh, says store it cold, but people seem to be arguing against this for some reason. Thanks. Jason, who adds uh, in parens, stuck in southwest England. Well, listen. Hey, if you're going to be in southwest England, Jason, now's the time. Shout out to Somerset and the cider folks over there. You guys got to be rolling in apple cider at this point. I mean, maybe it's not done yet, but that's one of the apple cider producing kingdoms, like centers of the universe right there. I mean, if I like, like, in fact, if I had the time, if I wasn't working on so much stuff and if it wasn't Thanksgiving, I'd be getting on a plane right now and flying to the uh, other side. And, you know, sorry, Somerset, I'd be going to Kent to go to the, uh, the Brogdale collection and chewing down on some apples and having some delicious cider over there. So good time to be from the south, uh, I mean, good time of year to be uh, from the south of England. Remember? Yeah, yeah, it was a fun time. Good time. Yeah, fun time. Fun time, my own. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sick. Anyway, uh, that's my nostalgia invitation, by the way. Okay, so back to the question on coffee. Now, listen. I was not able, listen, I was not able to find any actual uh, scholarly research on this, but I will tell you, uh, the reasoning uh, that I have heard over the years, and uh, it's also, and you know, not to choose sides with your wife, but that you shouldn't store the coffee in the fridge. And here's why: uh, it's not the cold. Uh, it's not the. Co- it's not the cold that's hurting it. It's the fact that uh, you get a lot of condensation as the temperature changes up and down, up and down, up and down. So if you had, uh, if you had coffee in a hermetically sealed bag that had no moisture or you know, the same amount of moisture that the coffee had in it, controlled atmosphere, let's say, CO2 purge, nitrogen purge, vacuum, right? Uh, and you pulled it uh, in and out of the fridge, there might actually be some damage from temperature cycling, but the damage wouldn't be that great because you wouldn't be getting any condensation from the outside, from moisture coming into the outside. Uh, in a normal situation, there's moisture, and the condensation of that moisture on the surface of the beans as the temperature changes is what's causing the problem. And that's especially going to happen if you're in and out, in and out, in and out. If you are going to freeze uh, the coffee, freezing is viable, but you have to make sure that there's no moisture in the package at all. So you want to get all the air out of the package. If you have the ability to flush uh, with some sort of gas like CO2 or whatnot, if it's not fresh, very fresh beans, by the way, when you roast a fresh bean, if you were to, by the way, you should just roast, you should roast your own beans, which is a load of fun. Just get some green beans, roast them. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, it's really, it really is. And you can, you don't have to get really some fancy equipment. You can start just with a pan and, 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 you know, spoon, you know, shake it around. Uh, if you just invest, I think like 20 bucks in a Whirly Pop popcorn maker, they make great, you can roast coffee very well in that. I know I'm going to get some calls saying that I'm a jerk, but you don't even need a thermometer. Uh, you can do it based on sound and smell, 
don't say don't tell anyone I said that, but you can do good coffee roasting just uh, based on that, or you can move to an air popcorn popper. A number of ways to do roast coffee, but then you can do it. But if you roast your own coffee, you'll notice that um, they gas a lot. If you were to take freshly roasted coffee that you just roasted and sealed it in a jar, uh, assuming the jar didn't blow up, I don't think it would make enough pressure to blow up the jar. But when you open it, it will. You get a blast of CO2 out because the CO2 is being evolved out of the beans as they age. Uh, and so that's why they actually have one-way valves in these bags to stop the bags from puffing up so that the CO2 can get out. Um, once the beans uh, have gotten rid of all of their CO2 – beans. Once the beans have gotten rid of the CO2, uh, then they start to oxidize much more rapidly and they, and they stale. Um, I don't know what, I, what got me in I don't know why I got into that. But my point is is that uh, they want to be protected from oxygen. Oxygen is going to be their enemy. Moisture is going to be their enemy. Um, so I think that the – also, your fridge has lots of uh, – I don't know about your fridge. You might have the cleanest fridge in the world. But fridges tend to have a lot of um, stinks in them. They will stink, uh, which is why like when a fridge – when the power goes out, you realize how stinky your fridge is because it's not cold anymore, which does, you know, doesn't dampen down the volatiles and you can really smell it. So coffee, which is very porous, tends to pick up bad aromas. It tends to pick up moisture, which condenses on it as it goes in and out of the fridge, and so the consensus is don't do it. Yeah? Good job. Yeah? All right. Nastasha's happy with my answer. Let's I hope, Jason, break. that you were happy with my answer. What? Let's, should we take a break? Nastasha thinks we should go to our first commercial break, so we'll do that. Call and all your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Cooking issues.
Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So the Nirvana folks, the, the, you know, I, I like the Nirvana. That was what I grew up with. So I'm at this wedding that Nastasha oh. is running, right? <laughs> this was not my fault. Uh, hey, look. So <laughs> the DJ's playing all kind of easy, you know, not easy, but, you know, like, you know, brick house, like wedding kind of stuff, you know? Mighty, mighty. Anyway, and so, like, you know, I'm dancing. By, well, by the way, I'm a, kind of a lunatic dancer, and I was with Vicky, our former intern, who's all, like an awesome Staten Island lunatic dancer. Awesome, amazing. And my wife. We're dancing, and they throw on, uh, you know, they throw on um, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit from Nirvana. And I'm like, wait, what? 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 At a wedding? I was like, look, if you're going to do that, the only appropriate way to do that is to go complete mosh out, headbang, slam. So I'm like, all right, you asked for it, you played it, and so I started doing the, the headbang. Now it's not the same as when I had long hair back in 19, uh, you know, 90, 91. But uh, you clear the dance. Floor. I clear the dance floor. I mean, everyone's like trying to do the little shoulder shake. It's freaking Nirvana. Anyways, uh, you know, thank God it wasn't 1991, or like some giant football jock would have started doing it and smashed into me and knocked me halfway across the... This is my memory, by the way. Now, this is what my life used to be like. Anywho, uh, my neck is still sore. So it turns out that when you're 40 going on 41, if you haven't done the headbang in a while, you might want to stay away. Today's show is sponsored by Modernist Pantry, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients, but hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application? Modernist Pantry has a solution. They offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cook or enthusiast, and most cost only around five bucks, saving you time, money, and storage space. Whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH buffers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With inexpensive shipping to any country in the world, Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Fans of cooking issues that place an order of $25 or more before next week's show will get a free sample of transglutaminase, a.k.a. meat glue, to experiment with over the holidays. Simply use the promo code CI63, placing your order online at ModernistPantry.com. Visit ModernistPantry.com today for all of your Modernist cooking needs. Meat glue. We've talked about it. I like it, though. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. It is good for the holiday season, a little meat glue. Um, those guys, they like us, those Modernist Pantry guys, huh? It's good. Have we met them? No. Never met them in person, huh? Mm-mm. Anyway. Uh, so what are you doing for the Thanksgiving? I don't know yet. You don't know? I, I've, I put my order in for the uh, turkey. You put your oh, order for the turkey? no, I didn't. I, you know, the turkey farmer, do you guys remember his name, the turkey farmer? Larry Sorrell. Larry Sorrell, the heritage meat turkey farmer, right? I guess, like... It's done, done. The turkeys are slaughtered. They're dead. So he can come in from, you know, where does he live? Is he in Pennsylvania? Where is he? Uh, Kansas. Kansas. Same thing. Kansas, Pennsylvania. Yeah, same thing. Same thing. Uh, anyway, so he's, uh, he's here at Roberta's eating, which is awesome because I'm about to go uh, to the Heritage Meat Stand at Essex Street Market. By the way, you can now just any, – any Jokomo who happens to show up in the Lower East Side of New York can go purchase Heritage Meats at the Essex Street Market. Little known fact by people who didn't already know it, and uh, uh, and I'm going to go pick up my turkey today. And next week I'll report back of how delicious. What are you doing? I don't know. You know what? <laughs> I, you know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I might uh, look. I, I've become lazy in my old age. As soon as you hit forty, you instantly become lazy. Sorry, all you forty-five year olds, you're lazy sons of guns. Anyway, uh, I'm, I think I'm just going to bone the sucker out. Oh, roll not, it. And what cook are you it. doing for Thanksgiving? I meant that's what I'm telling oh, you about the turkey. Cooking. I'm going to bone it out. 
What else is there to do? Be thankful for my family? I'm kidding. Uh, so I'm going to Mystic, which is where my uh, in-laws live. But uh, I'm going to bone out the turkey uh, and probably roll it and then, uh, and then cook it that way. I think that's the easiest way. I, you know, I just don't have the time this year to do the, uh, you know, the, the aluminum skeleton and pumping the oil. Although it is the best damn turkey I've ever made. Anyway, on to questions. Uh, Matthew writes in uh, about braise colors. Thanks a lot for answering my questions last week. This week I am working on a sandwich for my business based around red wine braised beef. I am braising chuck on the stovetop in red wine and beef broth. After slowly simmering for a few hours, I pull the beef apart and reduce the braise to a glaze. Everything comes out pretty well except for the color ends up being grayish. Ideally, I want to end up with something the color of red wine or Concord grape juice. Mmm, Concord grape juice. Mm, delicious. Nastasha's favorite. Any ideas or suggestions would be a great help. Thanks, Matthew. Okay, look. Here's the issue. Well, assume let's just, let's knock right off the bat. You're not using an aluminum. I mean, not aluminum. You're not using a reactive pan that's going to cause a color problem, right? So typically, like aluminum or copper or anything like that. I'm assuming that you're working in stainless or some other form of something that's not going to cause any sort of off coloring based on the metal. It's bang, done. Uh, I think anytime you're doing a long cook and you're reducing and you have a lot of. Uh, stuff like beef broth or browns the colors are never going to be as punchy as you want uh i mean if you say gray usually i'm used to going kind of a brownish color uh and then that brown can go somewhat grayish if there's fat that ends up getting emulsified into the braise so i'd make sure you try and skim the fat after before you before you reduce it down to a glaze get the fat off of it um also you might the flavor is going to be different like the real depth of flavor you're going to want that uh that you know browned you know meat stock but you might move to like a white veal stock which you can reduce a lot more without getting the huge color impact from all the brown bits uh you know if you don't brown the meat as much but again all that stuff's what makes it delicious so i think it's going to be hard to kind of punch the color now you can cheat but it, it really ru- you know cha- not ruins it's delicious changes the flavor by doping up the color with things that have very high colorant values like uh jelly <laughs> like concord grape jelly but that's going to add concord or tomato paste or something of that nature is going to punch uh, punch the the red up. Um, I'm interested in hearing anyone else whether they have any suggestions on this. Uh, I mean, I like a braised kind of a sauce, but they always do look kind of gloopy unless you just create the sauce from scratch instead of having it be part of the braise. You know, like have the braise be the braise, save that sauce, continue to braise it, and then just make a specific sauce that has a specific color profile, a cassis or whatever, to go with it. What do you think, Steph? Sounds good. She's like, I don't care. I'm sick. She's like, I don't give a crap. I'm sick. Happy Thanksgiving. Okay. Colin writes in, you mentioned uh, on last week's show that tannins and pectins combine in persimmons as they ripen to make them less astringent. Can I add pectin to something tannic like black walnut booze, for instance, to reduce the astringency? I tried an LN2, that's liquid nitrogen for all you folks out there, freeze last year to dehydrate the tannins at your suggestion, but that did not have a strong effect. Sorry. Uh, I'll try pectin, but if you ever tried something similar, thanks, Colin. Okay, look it. Look it. (laughs) What happens is um, tannin will complex with uh, pectin in fruit, right, in a bledding situation. Uh, bledding. That's – look it up. Anyway, uh, or listen to last week's show. Uh, but the um, most effective way to do it, tannins like to bind with proteins a lot. So if you really want to bind the hell out of tannins, you're going to want to treat it with a protein-based wine-finding agent. So what are your choices? Uh, already in your fridge, most likely – Egg white. So uh, mix um, – and you can look up the proportions in, uh, you know, in a wine finding on the internets. But it's usually egg white and salt. Uh, I forget why the salt's there. I think to I don't know, make the proteins act better. I don't know why it's there, frankly. Uh, and water to make it easy to mix in. You stir it into your liquid. 
Um, and then over the course of, se- of like a week or two, the egg white proteins will combine with the tannins into larger, um, into larger complexes. And when they do that, they'll slowly sink to the bottom and then you can rack the, the stuff off the top. So that's a classic way to do it. Uh, even more hardcore than uh, egg in terms of its ability to remove tannins because egg's going to remove tannins but not uh, necessarily that much. Gelatin. If you, uh, if you uh, dissolve gelatin, mix the gelatin in, the gelatin will complex with the tannin and then over time settle out into the bottom and you can rack it off. If you have a centrifuge, you can do it uh, even easier. So it's typically these – also milk proteins can do it if you, if you combine uh, milk proteins. But the problem with milk proteins is uh, I think in order to get them to settle out properly – you might have to have a fairly low pH, which I think you won't have in your walnut liqueur. So it's you know it's it's a question. Uh, also, I think the gelatin will work at basically any pH, but typically these things are done at wine pHs. But I would use this sort of a, this sort of a technique, or move to something like chitosan, which you can get at a. Um, you know what? Stick with a protein. Tell tell me how it works. So one of those things uh, should work. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Anyway, whatever, whatever. Anyway, okay. Aaron from the north of England. It's an English show today. By the way, our good friend Tony Canuyaro is engaged from Bar- 69 Colbrook Road, engaged to be married. Happened a long time ago, but I don't think we've mentioned it on the air. Yeah, Amazing. congratulations. Yeah, Taria from Pernod Ricard. Nice. Mm-hmm. Anyway, good people. Uh, okay, uh, Aaron writes in, uh, hello, Nastasha and Dave. I'm still loving the show. Thanks very much. Very inspiring. I like that he's like assuming that we're going to turn to crap. He's like, I'm still loving it. <laughs> I was expecting it would be crap by now, but I'm still loving it. No, nice. I think it's a lot of people are responding to, are you listening? Oh, yeah, yeah. right. It's one of these. <laughs> you there? You there? Anyway. Uh, I would really like to improve how I present my food. I'm not looking for super fine dining level of presentation, but I would like to incorporate as much as possible of that quality into the food I serve people at home. Uh, I'm in the north of England and haven't found any appropriate courses anywhere near me so far. Can you recommend any resources online or in print to help me learn? Uh, All the best. Thanks very much, Aaron. It's an interesting question, actually. Um, It's a very interesting question. Uh, and it's one I was thinking about this morning, and I don't have a I don't have a good answer, so I'm just going to talk about it. We used to teach a plating course at the French Culinary, but I don't, Nils taught it because Nils is kind of a monster plater. Uh, but they you know they they don't teach it anymore. Plating at home is always uh, it's difficult because usually you're the only person doing the plating, and you have to get all the components together and and serve it out. So it can be a, a little more difficult. But if what you're interested in is just I typically at home will serve uh, family style, and then the question is just making the individual dishes look nice. So you have to look at it from a, like a range of a range of, of of ideas. One, are you just talking about what the food looks like in general, or are we really talking about plating? If you're just talking about what the food looks like in general, then as you're making choices, you make choices not only based on taste, but based on how how something's going to look in the end, right? So you'll choose things. Obviously, taste is the primary thing you're going to choose, but you'll think, well, that color is going to go really nice with that. And instinctively, you start making choices about how things like that are going to look. Being that, oh, man, that color would look really nice. You know, what flavor would go really nice that has that color? And you could bring like a pop, you know, like, a, like really something nice and poppy to it color-wise, right? Uh, uh, or I'm going to use a different kind of a cooking technique because I don't want it to look over-reduced or brown or something like this, right? So that's the first step. The second step then is, is actually once you get the, the colors and the, and the look of the food to be what you want, now how do you present it? And the, the best way to do that is to just read not – I don't have any good uh, – I've read some. I'm not going to even recommend them. But the ones I've – I'm sure there's great ones. So I'm not insulting 
if it happens to be someone here that's written one, please tell us which one it is. I'll take a look at it. But some of the old plating technique books that I've read, I don't really – first of all, they, they tend to be dated by the time they come out. And you know, they're kind of they're – kind of, I don't know, just – They've never really been inspired by them, you know. What I would do is just go look at a bunch of chef cookbooks that put out restaurant meals, and you get an idea for what's possible with plating. So, if you're looking to do food at a particular in a particular style, then find the cookbook of a chef who's respected who does that. Like, if you want, like, kind of, hey, I'm a I'm a badass big meat jockey. Go get the Pierre de Couchon book and like, you know, he'll show you how to stick a knife through a sandwich or something like that. You know what I mean? Or if you want to do something kind of really like high-end plating and fresh and new, go look at like Levin Madison's All Plated Out, you know, the new cookbook. But I would look at at cookbooks. But I'm going to think more about this and hopefully people will write in and tell me things that they like so that next week I can – mention them on the show do you have anything no no i think that's a good idea though. yeah but i'm, I'm interested in hearing from yeah. uh you know this week you can prove you're listening by writing in with uh ideas for blading technique uh like resources right you live in the middle of nowhere yeah yeah i mean the other thing is like you can practice like there's certain plating techniques you can learn like you can learn to canal something right uh and let's look online for youtube videos on how to canal or you can learn how to drop, uh, you know, oil onto a soup with a with a squeeze bottle. I mean, if you want to do some fancy plating techniques, learn to do good work with a spoon, like the brush, the schmear. Learn to learn to drop things out of squeeze bottles, but that's kind of old school. Anyway, uh, look it up. Nastasha is is trying to punch me in the face, telling me we have to take our second commercial break. So we'll come right back. Call your questions too. Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Fly just attacked me. Uh, welcome back to Cooking Issues. So, Nastasha, you're gonna you're gonna even though you're sick, you're gonna go to the Thanksgiving Day Parade this year. No, no, I'm gonna watch them blow up the balloons tomorrow. I like that. I wish they would explode the balloons. I hate parades. The only thing I like what have what? your kids gone? No, hell no, <laughs> no, no. First of all, my son Booker. Can you imagine him in that crowd of people no, waiting but for to a balloon see to the pass? Balloons blown up around natural history. That's cool. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen every parade. You've I hate parades. Parade. Hey, listen. You know what I like? Bagpipes. <sighs> you, you, you don't like bagpipes now? No, I do. It's just you would, you know? I mean, I would. I don't know. Bagpipes are amazing. Mm-hmm. It's sad. What's sad? The sound is sad. It's not sad. It's stirring. Okay. Look. <laughs> if you get married, bagpipe. Oh, my God. It's yes. a funeral. No, it's not only for funerals. I want all of Scotland to punch Nastasha in the face the next time you see her. I'm kidding. Don't do that. Not advocating any violence. But I'm saying, 
Yes, funerals because it's stirring. You're also supposed to play bagpipes when you march into battle, and you play the big weddings. <laughs> I would not want that. Not that. I wouldn't. Bagpipes want that. are always appropriate. Anytime stirring music is appropriate, the Great Highland bagpipes is appropriate. Okay. okay. It's an amazing instrument. Anyway, <laughs> I enjoy bagpipes. What do you think? Every parade is a funeral. Why do they have them at parades? I, I guarantee I, they don't have them here. What? Well, I don't care. I don't like the Thanksgiving Day Parade. The heck? Just marching bands. Yeah, marching bands. Bagpipes. <laughs> yeah. Funeral. Can we just do the rest of the show with bagpipes in, in the background? background? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. We have to put in imagine the greatest Jack, rock and roll Jack, bagpipe of all time. Imagine that which at is, your wedding. That's not really a great look. Which is long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. It's the greatest use of bagpipes in rock and roll. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. Yes! Okay. Back on, back on task. Back on task? Back on <laughs> cooking issues task? All right. Sorry. Anyway, uh, on record, I do not enjoy a parade except for the bagpipes. Okay. Uh, Steve Santana writes in, I was wondering if Dave could go over a few sous vide questions relating to duck breasts. Should the skin be scored before bagging or just before searing? Should the breast be bagged with butter or better yet rendered duck fat if I can find some or would the fat already under the skin be enough? With the same results from uh, the last to salt or not to salt post apply to duck breast too, and should the duck breast be chilled after cooking? Uh, and he's asking 40 minutes to 64 Celsius as the time and temperature for cooking before searing. Okay, I'm just going to go over this. First of all, don't cook the duck breast that high. I would not go uh, standard, uh, you know, like Long Island pecking style duck uh, breasts, 57 degrees Celsius for 45 minutes is sufficient. Uh, I wouldn't go above that. If you have a, a, a tougher duck breast, sometimes you can go to 58. I don't recommend cooking duck breasts longer than about an hour because it doesn't happen all the time, but they can start tasting livery and the color can start going gray if they're cooked for too long. So I would not recommend cooking the duck breast too long. Also, I don't bag the duck breast with anything other than the duck breast. Uh, they, they don't really need it because here's what you're going to – and I don't – cut it or do anything beforehand because you're not really rendering out fat at those temperatures. If you're cooking to 50, 57, 58, you're not really rendering a lot of fat. So uh, what I would do is bag the duck breast, put it on a table, squash the skin side flat so that later on when you sear it, it will um, it will be flat against your pan. It's going to sear out properly. Now, I know the, the good folks at Modernist Cuisine, you know, Young, Miravold, Belay, they, I think, do a pre-sear, a cryo-sear uh, they freeze the duck skin, then they uh, they poke it with holes, then they freeze it, then they then they bag it, then they cook it, then they refreeze it, then they sear it. I typically I haven't done a side by side, so I don't know what's better. I typically don't sear my duck breast before because what I'm doing when I do my sous vide cooking is a technique I call. Uh, low temperature or sous vide for insurance purposes. I'm ensuring that the duck breast is cooked throughout to the temperature I want. And then I cool it and then I sear it off as though I was doing a traditional cook on it. The only difference is, is that now all I'm focusing on is crispy, delicious skin. So I'm not worried about cooking the duck breast because it's already cooked. So uh, all I'm worried about then is rendering the fat and crisping the skin out. Uh, and so that's a, and it's a whole, there's a whole range of techniques like that that I call low temp. You might call it sous vide, although you're wrong. It's low temp unless it's in a vacuum bag, which this is, uh, for insurance. I do that with roasts. I'll do it with poultry. I'll do it with, with a lot of things. And, it, it, and what it lets you do is get a lot of traditional taste and texture, uh, but at the same time ensure that uh, you 
have the meat cooked properly and that you're only focusing on one problem at a time, getting the skin right instead of trying to get the skin right and the meat right at the same time. Okay. Now, uh, as uh, regards uh, scoring it, uh, Nils, and I have to agree with him here because I did a side-by-side, detests scoring uh, the skin on a duck because when you score it, uh, where you score it, you tend to overcook the meat because the steam when your rendering goes up and overcooks the meat at that point. Uh, there's a, there's, there's flymageddon, by the way, going on outside. There's always something fun. There's something crazy always going on outside at Roberta's Pizzeria. Today is Flymageddon. They're like <laughs> running around with smashing uh, flies with, uh, with papers. What? What was it last week? I don't remember. Oh, and last week it was Indie Jesus. <laughs> well, that's every week at Roberta's Pizzeria. Uh, so anyways, so uh, where was I? So uh, I would use – here's a technique that modernist cuisine does, which everyone can do and I think is awesome. Go to your local pet supply store and purchase a dog combing brush, the ones with all the little spikes in it. And instead of scoring the uh, skin on the duck breast, whack it a few times with the dog with the stainless steel dog comb, and that way uh, you can render out a lot of the fat without overcooking the uh, meat. It's a great technique. I've tried it. Uh, I think it's awesome. Do not salt the duck before you cook it. Salt the duck maybe right before you sear it, and that's the that's the way to go. What do you think? Good. Oh, I want to make a shout out to the guys who listen at Blue Hill at Stone Barns. All right, make a shout-out. Hi. Well, that's quite a shout-out, Nastasha. You really <laughs> no, know how to shout-out. Be like, to the guys who listen at Blue Hillstone Bars, keep it farming. That's a shout-out. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Uh, Tim Hayes from Eugene, Oregon writes in. Uh, regard- I'll just read it. Hi, Tim from Eugene, Oregon here, ready to tell you how great the podcast is and ask you a question. I usually stay on the savory side when cooking, but lately I've been seduced by the sweet recipes from Christina Tozzi's Momofuku Milk Bar book, specifically the incredible cookie recipe she has so kindly shared with the world. My favorite cookie of hers is is the corn cookie. I enjoy the corn cookie quite a lot. Do you like the corn cookie? You you don't like corn and cookies. You're a low-quality person, Nastasha. Although I love you, but you're a low-quality human being. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know what I'm saying. Tough. I'm so immune to it. What? What (laughs) What'd you say to me? What are you talking about? (laughs) Like, low-quality, when you call me that, it's like a a nice love thing. Yeah. When other people hear you say it, they're like, whoa. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's with love, folks. (laughs) I don't want anyone. I don't want anyone to be like, "Whoa!" He just called her a low quality human being. <laughs> One day we'll be low quality human beings. Exactly, back here. Jack. Wow. Well, it depends. Uh, do you hate corn and peanuts? <laughs> no. <laughs> do you hate biscuits? No. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Sorry. Specifically, the incredible cookie recipe she has so kindly shared with the world. My question relates to the epic hard body ten minute creaming of butter and sugar that the rest of her cookie recipes require. Uh, and by the way, what, what we're talking about here is Tozy recommends um, a, a very long creaming process, 10 minutes, where the sugar and the butter are creamed <laughs> together, uh, and then the eggs are whipped in. And the basic idea is, is to generate as much uh, – by the way, if you heard that thwap <laughs> 10 seconds ago, it was part of Flymageddon going on in Roberta's. Uh, so the, cre- the prolonged creaming step uh, whips a lot of air into the cookie and provides the uh, structure that she likes in her cookie, and so she's – very and we work in the milk bar commissary i can say they cream the hell out of that stuff anyway so uh, my question relates to the epic hard body 10 minute creaming of butter and sugar that her recipes require i see the reasons for this step uh, to aerate the mix but her peanut butter cookie recipe got me thinking she mentions that you only need to cream this recipe for about three minutes because of the emulsifying properties of the peanut butter sure enough 
the mix fluffs up much quicker. So two-part question. What about peanut butter makes it such a great emulsifier? And would it be possible to use emulsifying agents to quicken the creaming in other cookie recipes? Now, I guarantee that the way that uh, C. Tozy figured this out was she noticed that her peanut butter stuff was um, – Queen, you know, was getting the amount of air beaten into it much more quickly than other things. And then the question is, is it really the emulsifiers in it that are doing it? And I did some initial research, uh, and it, 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 it's hard to find. Apparently, look, pro, like protein, there is protein in peanuts, and that protein can probably act somewhat as an emulsifying agent. And then the second question is, well, <laughs> perhaps there's – what the, what's wrong with you, Nastasha? He's hitting the flies, but he's got this cigarette in the other hand. What does that have to do with anything? Crazy. Stasi, she's crazy. She's crazy for me. Anyway, so uh, I looked up uh, peanut butters, uh, industrial peanut butters. I looked up Jif and I looked up Skippy. Okay? Now, everybody knows, some people know, I should say, if you grind your own peanut butter or you buy natural peanut butter, the uh, peanut oil separates from the peanut solids and has to be whisked back in, right? Peanut butter is basically, you know, solids kind of emulsified into a into peanut oil. So, Jif does that, good old Jif. Jif does that by adding mono and diglycerides, which is a straight up emulsifier. So if you use Jif, you are add, you are adding an emulsifier into your cookie mix and that will help incorporate air, right? But uh, if you look at Skippy's label, Skippy doesn't put mono and diglycerides in their regular peanut butter. Instead, they substitute a certain amount of peanut oil for a hydrogenated fat. And that hydrogenated fat, which is solid instead of uh, liquid at room temperature, prevents the separation of Skippy peanut butter. Okay? So there's two basic ways that they can stop the separation of peanut butter. Emulsifiers or with uh, adding uh, a hydrogenated fat. My prediction, look towards more people adding uh, emulsifiers because less and less people are going to want to add hydrogenated fat because of the bad rap hydrogenated fat gets. This guy is freaking serious about killing flies, by the way. That's, that's crazy. It's like, it's like seriously, it's like, it's like you know, war crimes against flies. He's like going crazy over here. Anyway, uh, but that led me to think, actually, I think what's going on is that the peanut butter itself is acting as a whipping agent, right? So when you're creaming sugar – and uh, butter. Uh, the sugar, the particles in the sugar before they dissolve and melt are acting as uh, basically they're carving holes in the butter as you're, as you're whipping and they act as a whipping and aerating agent. And I think the tiny particles in peanut butter are also acting as a whipping agent, which is why you can actually whip peanut butter. If you add a little liquid to it, you can whip it up on its own. So I think it's probably not the emulsifiers that are doing it, but the fact that the peanut butter itself is acting as a whipping agent. I could use a peanut butter cookie right about now. Maybe I'll go to Milk Bar and steal a peanut butter cookie. Are we going there? We're going to Milk yeah. Bar because I have work, work to do, but I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm gonna steal a peanut butter cookie. So if anyone there is, uh, you know, be on notice. I'm going to steal a peanut butter cookie from you. Anyway, uh, I hope all of you have a fantastic Thanksgiving and a delicious, delicious, delicious turkey on your turkey day. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. 
You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.